Blog Talk Radio. Okay. My dad was uh, uh, 
career naval aviator, and we were, he was stationed at Ream Field, North Island, and on the Hornet, so he spent a lot of time in Coronado, and many years later, I went back and stayed there when we, the family went back and had a Thanksgiving there many years ago. Yeah, it's really, uh, the hotel is cool, and they give you a robe. <laughs> I was there. I was there when, they, as a little kid, when they shot some like it hot. You were there that week. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. Um, in fact, there's a little family story that was kind of funny. That that's cool. My my grandfather and um, Arthur Miller's father were good friends, and Arthur Miller hadn't been in contact with his dad. I guess he'd been ignoring his calls. So my grandfather. Arthur Miller had come with Marilyn Monroe, who they were married at the time, for the shooting. So, um, I, I don't know if I told this story, but anyway, my, no, dad, never heard it before. my dad and said, go find Arthur Miller and tell him to call his father. So dad went to the Hotel Dell, and, and in those days it was much different, said who he was, what he wanted, and they told him where the bungalow was, amazingly. He knocked on the door, and Marilyn Monroe answered. <gasps> And, and when my dad explained what was going on, she realized it was a legit. said, Arthur's not here, but would you like to come in? And uh, father said, sure, of course, that he's Navy after all. <laughs> and, and they had a lovely afternoon together, and she invited him and my mother, you know, which was a politically good thing to do, to a cocktail party that night, which uh, they went to. My young brother and I did not. But uh, father was with a helicopter squadron eight at the time and invited Marilyn Monroe up in the helicopter. To which Billy Wilder said, "You can go anytime you like after you finish my movie." <laughs> I can understand that. <laughs> and I, I have no idea if Arthur Miller ever contacted his father, but that seems anticlimactic. From what I uh, I've read, I that's amazing. Um, but I, from what I read, uh, Marilyn was really close to both Austin Miller's parents. Even after they divorced, she was very close to his parents. Well, that's just how the, the weird little circles interconnect. Yep, it's really interesting. Um, but yeah, well, I, I almost I almost got to meet Marilyn Monroe. I think I uh, I was out for some of the shooting, you know, with the crowd in the background because my folks thought, "Oh, you guys would like to see this." My brother and I. Had but I don't think I ever saw her. I think I saw Tony Curtis and Jack Lemmon, but I don't recall seeing Marilyn Monroe, and I think I would have remembered that. Did you see them uh, in regular clothes or in drag, or how did you see them? Uh, they, they were on the beach shooting shooting a scene. Um, Tony Curtis was... I mean, I, I vaguely remember. I remember more now because I've seen the film, but he was dressed in the Playboy outfit, and Jack Lemmon was in drag. In his Cary Grant, doing Tony doing his Cary Grant. <laughs> yeah. Who talks like that? I was a, you know, I mean, you know, don't forget, it takes a long time to shoot a scene. We were probably there for an hour, so I didn't see, I didn't see a great deal of the actual filming. I did get to meet Tony Curtis, <laughs> but it was like well, when he was old. Um, it was just a few months before he died. He was at the Hollywood Collectible Show, and uh, he was there to sign and, and everything. But he was really there to sell his paintings. Um, but we talked, and he was really nice. He, he reminded me kind of like my dad in the way he talked to you. Not, not. Uh, my dad's also a Brooklyn boy. <laughs> he was really nice. Was he nice to the kids? 
I don't remember. I don't remember actually interconnecting with him at all. I think we were just off in the distance, you know, behind a barrier or something watching. I mean, I was very, very young, and it was a long time ago. I almost met him at the Magic Castle. I was doing a seance. Uh, the seance at the Magic Castle is a private room, and they serve a dinner, a very gourmet dinner, and afterwards a medium comes in and they hold a theatrical seance. And my group was late getting into the room because they were shooting an interview with Tony Curtis because it was a very private, the only private room in the club. And so the interview was running over, so we were late getting in for our seance time. And at the end of the seance, the medium, who was a friend of mine, said, Brooks, I see a gift for you. I see a green package floating over your head. And I looked up, and there on the shelf was a little green package, and I opened it up, and it was a DVD of Some Like It Hot. Aww. As a thank you for us being late to get into the room. Alas, not autographed, but got a DVD of Some Like It Hot. That was nice of him, and probably just came out, right? Uh, I don't, I don't know. I think the deep, I think it may have been even into the beginning of the Blu-ray era. But whatever it was, it was a nice gift and a nice thank you for making my group, you know, a half hour late getting into the room. Yeah, yeah. I, I, it, actors are kind of cool. Um, I remember I was working at a reservation center, and Al Pacino called in my line. And what the center I worked in was we worked for we were the emergency services for travel agencies because it was weekends, night, holidays, something like that. It was a holiday weekend and he was it was icy and he was in Long Island and he was trying to make a plane because he had to go to Europe and he was late and he wanted somebody to hold the plane. I mean, he wasn't mean or and he wasn't demanding. He just said, I'm desperate. Please see if there's any way they can hold the plane just 20 minutes. We're only 20 minutes out. And I'm like, wow, 20 minutes. Um, I go, well, I can't. So I, put, I said, please hold. And he said, sure. And I went to my supervisor. And he said, she said, keep him talking. I'll see what I can do. So I went back to the phone and I said, well, my supervisor's going to see what she can do. I'm really sorry about the delay. And, we t he, and then we just started talking because we had to wait about 10 minutes. He was still driving. And she came back and, he, and she goes, it, it's clear. They're going to hold it for him. Wow. See, you get some perks when you're a major movie star. Yeah. And I told him and he said, oh, you're a princess. Thank you. Thank you. And I got a dozen roses. Oh, that is very, very sweet. Um, I mean, there are perks with being a world-renowned celebrity. Not that I would know. <laughs> but yeah, he was—he was, uh, out of that job. That was one. It was a really hard job. The, out of that job, he was one of the nicest people that I talked to. <laughs> well, I've always noted that many people—you know—many people in the business have fans. I just seem to have predators. <laughs> Oh, I doubt that. I think you have fans. Uh, I don't know. Writers usually have creditors and critics, but... <laughs> well, why did you write it that way? Why didn't you do this? Um, I, think of it. I wanted to ask you about the Magic Castle. What's going on? Because I, I heard it closed. Well, it's closed because of the pandemic. I mean, we can't go into the building. They were having outdoor dining, which I did once with fellow magician and co-writer Lena Poussette, and we went there for dinner around Halloween. Now, we're both September birthdays, and the month of your birthday, you get 
a free meal, but she couldn't make it in September, so they let us get our free meal in October. And so we went and had the outdoor dining, and it was nice to see the club. And of course, the spike happened right after that, so we didn't go back, and then that got closed down. But the castle is doing a lot of online events for members, and they do have this wonderful thing called Dine and Delight, where you, you, they have a different meal every night, Wednesday through Sunday, and it's very reasonable. You can order it the day before, and then just drive by, and it's a no-contact pickup. Like they have their Filet Mignon dinner for 23 bucks, and you don't have to be a member to get it. So anyone in the L.A. area, go to the Magic Castle website, go to Dine and Delight, and get a really great deal on gourmet Magic Castle food. That sounds really good. I and, and we're all we're all eagerly waiting for the pandemic to end so we can go back into our home away from home and Friday lunches and Sunday brunches and all the magic shows and the camaraderie. We we all miss that. It's a wonderful, unique club. I loved it. I've been there twice. I was invited by two different magicians. Um, but yeah, um, but I was I, as just an invite. I'm not a member. <laughs> Well, do you remember the classic, what do you call a magician who breaks up with his girlfriend? I don't know. Homeless. <laughs> oh, my God. That's funny. Um, so, I know you were working on some projects. Um, anything you can tell us about? Well, I found out. Um, I had celebrated 35 years working in television. And I announced I was retiring. And I found out the best way to get work is to announce you're retiring. <laughs> I, really, I really wish I'd latched onto this 10 years earlier. Because um, as soon as I announced my retirement, I was doing a documentary film and working on a friend's animation series, with, which actually I'm co-writing uh, episodes with, my, with Lena Poussette, who I mentioned, who's also I mean, a wonderful writer, actress, model, but a magician who... Uh, Lena and I worked the main stage at the Magic Castle together years ago. So suddenly, doing episodes of, a, of an animated show, a documentary feature about rock music, which is not my field of expertise, but I, I, I learned a lot. And, um, and uh, got back to work on my book, The Next Lady Sherlock Adventure. Just sent it to my editor, so she's supposed to get to it this month. And I'm working, uh, I'm working with a wonderful artist to do the illustrations, a man named Rick Holberg, who I didn't know it, but I'd worked together with him years ago because he was one of the artists on the X-Men animated show. So without knowing it, we sort of collaborated decades ago. Small world. Wow. And the new, the new Lady Sherlock adventure, which I hope to have out maybe mid-year, we will see. I, I hate to make those predictions. It's, it's a wonderful adventure. It's called Night of the Lethal Liberator. That's a good name. I like that. It is a homage to my, one of my favorite TV series, The Wild Wild West, because all of the episodes started with Night of the, or The Night of the, so, well, it was such a big influence on me, I'm going to name, name this new novel after as, as homage. So we will see how it does. It's, it's got some great stuff in it. It's, again, like the first book, it's based on some real history. And then we go to town, and it has the 1908 Olympics, an incredible world, a World's Fair-type exhibition called the British, Franco-British Exhibition, and a big period-correct airship. A period-correct airship? 
Yes, it's not a steampunk airship. It's only a slightly more advanced version of an airship that would have existed at the time. Wow. And it's, it's not steampunk. It's not Master of the World. It's not, you know, it, it's not sci-fi. It's actually just maybe five, six years more advanced than the actual ones that were built. And what I year was it? What? What year does it take place? It takes place in 1908, two years after the first book. Okay, that I can see. There was a lot of airships at that time. Yeah, there were a lot of airships, and they were they were the big coming thing. We never got 1908, uh, heavier than air airplanes. You know, you were measuring the, the trips in a couple of miles. You get in the thing. You'd go to fly, your friends would say goodbye, congratulate you, you'd land, and if it was a landing you could walk away from, you got congratulations. <laughs> and, uh, but, but the airships, I mean, you know, they were, they were very near the first commercial, the first commercial airline was airships in Germany. Yeah. I mean, they, were, they, were, they weren't money makers, but they were actually, they were actually scheduled flights. And, well, they had the, the Hindenburg. Well, that was... That, that was, was later, 19, but... That was many years later. That was the 1930s. And the Zeppelin Company, I mean, that was, I think, the first disaster they had. Because I think, if, if memory serves, the Zeppelin Company, up until that time, or at least in the earlier, had never lost a passenger. They were very safe. But, but there were a lot of airship accidents, I mean, you know, in developing them. It was the... Um when I said never lost, they never lost a paying passenger up until the Hindenburg, I think. But um, uh, they, they had lost crew and experiments, you know, in trying to figure out how to make these things work. But I learned a lot about airships. And that was because it was hydrogen, right? Yes, well, helium was rare. I don't think, it's been, I don't think they know how to develop large amounts yet, and it was only in the United States. The Hindenburg actually was built for helium, which didn't have as great a lifting capacity as hydrogen, so it was kind of overbuilt. They didn't need as much, they didn't need to fill it completely with hydrogen to get the same lift. But the U.S. wouldn't sell hydrogen, uh, helium to the Nazis. Good, helium good choice. So Very good choice. <laughs> helium was so expensive and rare that for a while when the Navy, the U.S. Navy had several airships, they would transfer them from one to the other. That makes the sense. Helium, they transfer the helium from one of these. Anyway, learned a lot about it. It's a great adventure, and uh, I, I, hopefully it'll be it'll be out mid year. And I, I think it's, it's, I, my one friend that read it. I said, "How did you like it?" She said, "I liked it better than the first book." Wow, because the first she book was really good. <laughs> there's a thing. In, there's a thing in screenwriting, and this is a novel. There's a thing called money scenes, which are the really great scenes that you you know you you, you string the rest of the movie around the money scenes. And my friend said, you've got a lot of great money scenes, and, and it's very exciting, and it shows a love of women. So uh, that sounds pretty good. Well, that's really yeah, cool. I think that's really and, cool. And I can't wait to read it. I, I'm, yeah. I've been biting at the bit since I finished the first one. <laughs> well, Lady Sherlock is back, and she doesn't suffer fools any more easily than she did in the first book. Well, yeah, because these characters are not going to change that much. <laughs> I think she's a little more developed and mature, but she's still a lot of fun. And some of the characters from the first book are back, and a whole new cast as well. So, and for fans of the first book, I think you'll like it. For people who haven't read the first book, I think you'll like it too.
and then you'll want to go back and read the first book, which did is an author I highly recommend. Did you, um, do you fix, not fix, do you, do you explain by the cliffhanger? Yeah, the first book does have a cliffhanger, and it is more developed what happens in the second book, but not completely resolved. Oh, okay. That's going to be one, one more <laughs> book to resolve that. Okay. So, yeah, so, that was something, I, I was like, that's why I'm waiting. That. <laughs> but Laura, the character you're referring to, is a big part of the second book, and of course, like the first book, she's narrating it from years later. Cool. Um, are so you that's, that's, that's what I've been up to, that and getting through, you know, getting through the isolation. Are you, um, are you working on anything uh, else while, you know, just doing stuff uh, well, to, to, for the time? And, and what are you doing uh, during this isolation period? Well, a documentary, animation show, and a novel. That's busy. Good. And I also manage the building in which I live. <laughs> well, that and, will keep and, you busy, too. And on New Year's night, on New Year's night, there was a fire next door. Yes, I saw that. Oh, how scary. I'm sorry. Now, <laughs> now, 11 years ago, there was a fire in my building. Two years ago, the building on the other side of us caught fire. And on New Year's Eve, the building on the opposite side caught fire. It is time for some of the rest of the block to have this experience and leave us alone. Is there like a fire bug near you or something? Well, this particular fire was started when the occupants of that uh, the small apartment building decided to light candles to celebrate New Year's and then take their dog for a walk. Oh, okay. So they did it to so, themselves, really. <laughs> so I immediately sent a notice to all of my tenants, don't leave t candles or any open flame unattended. Duh. You shouldn't have to say that. There's a lot of things you shouldn't have to say, but never underestimate the ability to people that compete strenuously for the Darwin Award. <laughs> How I, I, managed, I managed the building next door during the 90s when we had the big earthquake and the electricity was cut out and, one, and it was still dark, so one tenant lit about 10 candles and then left. Fortunately, I was able to go in and blow them all out because you know, there could have been a gas line rupture at least or other things, so never underestimate the sheer stupidity of your fellow human being. Well, I think there's yeah. many examples of that in the news of late. Oh, yeah. Too many. Yeah, um, I mean, we're not going to get political, but yeah, too many. <laughs> Let me just say, please wear a mask, wash your hands, and stay away from me. <laughs> Are you watching, uh, have you seen any movies, um, either streaming or any way that you, that you liked recently that are, are, that you recommend? <laughs> I, you know, I've been so busy, I haven't seen much, so I really need to, um, get, I did see, um, oh, Bank, and I like Bank. And? and um, it's, it's the story of Herman J. Mankiewicz and the writing of Citizen Kane. Oh, I did hear about that. I think I was thinking I don't know that one. Okay, now I I did hear about that. I saw it on uh, like a preview thing. Yeah, Gary Oldman plays um, plays Mankiewicz, and it's shot in black and white, and and beautifully evokes the most part of the period, and lots of fun, especially if you like old Hollywood. Cool. Who plays? Um, so uh, Gary Oldman plays. Uh, 
uh, Mankiewicz, who else is, who plays all the other characters? I can't remember. There's a lot of really big names and good names in it, and my mind just went blank because you asked me. Sorry. <laughs> but, uh, you know, for all of you out there, IMDb, that's what it's for. Yeah, that's true. The lady, the lady, the lady and I wish, maybe you can look it up while we're talking, who plays Marion Davies is wonderful. I loved that character. Oh, I loved her. She was amazingly funny. Yeah, and then she's, uh, she's it's a terrific performance, and I just can't remember the actress's name. She's a big name, and she's terrific in this, and maybe she'll win an Emmy, but um, this went out of my head. Anyway, Watch Mank, it's a great film. Uh, not a great film, but a very good film. Was, um... I, it was Mank his nickname or something? I guess so, because that's what they refer to him there often in the film. So it's, it's a lot of fun. And and again, a beautiful period. It was shot in black and white and shot in the style of a black and white film. Oh, Amanda Seyfried played Marion Davies. Yes. I love her. Yes, and she was terrific. And, and the, the, the photography evoked the look of the, the films of the era. He's from Mamma Mia and Mean Girls and um, Letters to Juliet. She's a really good actress. Yep. And she does brilliantly as Marion Davis and Gary Oldman. Well, what can you say about Gary Oldman? But, you know, he, it's fun to watch him in nearly anything. Um, but, yeah, I could see her playing Marion Davies. She's got that, that quality. Yep, and it's a really good script. Uh, so, yeah, take a peek. Does Gary Oldman disappear into Makowitz like he usually disappears into his characters? He certainly does. Because <laughs> I, to be honest, when I saw him as Winston Churchill, it, it was such a good makeup job that, I mean, and his voice was Churchill, you just didn't see Gary anywhere in there. <laughs> and Daniel Day-Lewis is another one. They just melt into their parts. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't. When he did Lincoln... It was like different person. You know, he like he reincarnated Lincoln. It was just amazing. There were other. I mean, Paul Muni when he did all those um, films in the thirties, the the biopics in the thirties, had that also had that quality. Was so different from film to film. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. Um, Essie Davis is like that too. Um, I I became aware of her from Miss Fisher, and then I found out that I had seen her in movies, but. I just didn't recognize her as the same woman. If you see her in different movies, she was in the X-Men. She was in, um, what's the one where they always wear black and they, like, fly through the air, fighting each other? And they always wear black and fly through the air. Yeah, and they wear sunglasses. Oh, The Matrix. Matrix. Yeah, she was in uh, all the Matrix movies. Didn't recognize her. She, she's, a, yep. she's a chameleon. <laughs> there, are, there are some wonderful performers out there and as a writer you always hope that you get someone like that to do your dialogue and bring the character to life and, and if they're good they will they will bring things you that never occurred to you as a writer and you're going wow all that was in there they found it or they added to it and I am so blessed I've, I've had that happen a few times and it just it just makes it all worthwhile yeah it's their interpretation is something you never expected. That's what's really cool about a really good actor. Yeah, they, they will, um, and that's one of the things we were talking about, um, you know, how, how you can bring dead actors to life with CGI and voice sound alike and things like that. And just, yeah, you can do that, but you can't bring to life the genius of that actor and know what they would do with the part. Exactly. You can just approximate it. 
And even even with all of that movie magic that they can do now, you ha it still comes down to the talent of the actor, and it's really hard to... And each of them were so individualistic, you know, like Cary Grant or Katherine Hepburn. You, you can't do that. You just you can't bring them back to life unless you're a good, great actor yourself. Well, I mean, you could do a simile of Cary Grant, for instance, but you'd never be able to really know for sure the choices a brilliant actor will make, how they will react, what they're going to do with the part. All of the subtleties that make them a great actor and make each of their performances unique in many ways. You can't anticipate that because that was what their genius was. Mm -hmm. All you could do is replicate the surface and audio, uh, a surface and audio simile, but, but you can't get under the skin. You can't get into the soul. It, that's the thing. It's, it, it's all their life's experience that comes into it. It's, it's all their imagination, all their reading, and some people, all their research, it depends on the actor. Um, you can't just assimilate that. You, it, it, that it, it's some kind. It's like a. Um, it's like a writer when you're writing. You don't really know where it's coming from. I mean, it's coming from you, but sometimes it doesn't feel like it's coming from you. I'm sure you understand what I mean. It's it's yes. it's hard to explain it. Uh, there's sometimes I, I I've gone back and read stuff I've written, and I'm like, oh, this is really good, and then I look, oh, I wrote this. <laughs> Well, writers, writers are people that have all these different voices floating around in their heads that don't need to be committed, usually. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> usually. I mean, there, there are, of course, exceptions that may have worked for a few. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. But it is, it's like, um, it's like uh, healthy schizophrenia. <laughs> Yeah, and also, you know, eventually you, you can you can end the conversation by killing off the character. <laughs> That's true. But it's really funny because um, it's like they really nather at you, knock, 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 and the, until you can just, you, okay, fine, and you write it down so it'll shut up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I could never, like my Lady Sherlock character, one, it's a female, I'm not, and two... She's far gutsier than I am, so I, you know, I, she says and she says things and that I would never get away with saying or think of saying. But when I'm writing her, that just comes because that's what who she is, and and with other characters as well. Every writer goes through that. You, you you get to create these characters. They're all they're all part of you, but they also take on a life of their own. Yeah, and I, it's like I think the first time I was where wasn't from another writer that other writers go through. It was actually, well, it was from another writer, but it was in a TV show. Um, in Agatha Christie, uh, Perot, um, there was a, um, a book and an adaption called Death in the Clouds. And there's an author that he uh, argues with his character to do the things he wants to do, and then when he won't do it, he can't put it in because if he, your lead character won't do it, how can you put it into your book? And it and, and <laughs> it was Agatha making fun of writers. It was really adorable, but I didn't realize that that was normal until I started talking to other writers later on. <laughs> yeah. Yes, and sometimes it will push the plot in other directions. But usually, um, 
because the Lady Sherlock books are thrillers, thrillers have to be very carefully crafted. There's a lot of moving parts, and they have to fit together like a Swiss watch. So I do a very, very comprehensive outline. I mean, the outline for this last Lady Sherlock novel was 30 pages. So I work, I work out all of the, the plot beats first. And uh, then when you get to write the scenes, that, that's the icing on the cake. But the carpentry, the construction, that, that, that I have to do first. Because with a thriller, it's too easy to write yourself in a corner if you don't know where you're going. Yeah, I've done that. Um, <laughs> sometimes it, it takes me a while to wiggle my way out. <laughs> And I think that's part of my television training because with television, you have, you know, for one thing, you've always got the clock in terms of the story has to be, excuse <clears throat> me, X number of pages, and it has to have breaks at certain times. So you read, and then also just on a commercial level, you have to get the outline approved before you can go to script. So, you know, most most of my career has been spent doing very, you know, detailed outlines or semi-detailed outlines to know exactly where the story is going to go, and then then you get to have the fun of writing the scenes. Anything happening that's coming up that you want to tell the audience about? Oh, just the book, and I think we've talked uh, a bit about that, and I can't give the name of the cartoon show or the documentary yet. That's still kind of in the offing. So, uh, you know, just just the book, Lady Sherlock, uh, Night, of the Li- Night of the Lethal Liberator. Do you have any... Do you have any classes or online events or anything like that? Oh, you know, thank you, thank you. Yes, I will be teaching in the spring an online class at UCLA, uh, my first online class. I've been teaching a writing class there for 15 years, but it's on campus. And so uh, last year when they asked if I'd like to do it online when things closed down, I said no. And after, because I think it's a class best served live, and also after 15 years, I needed a break. But I proposed a new class for them, which I was going to start last year live, and now I'm going to do this year online. And it's called it's a writing class called Original Remakes and Ripoffs at UCLA Extension, and it's a story analysis class as to why uh, telling the same story in different versions why it works in some tellings and doesn't work in others what choices were made that made it work one time and failed the second or third time, or maybe didn't work the first time, but were corrected the second time. And also, when you rip off a story and make it something else, did it work or not work? So I think it should be interesting. Cool. And what was the date of that? I don't have a firm date. I think it starts in April. And uh, so I'm, I'm just putting together putting together what the class will be and how I can do it. There's some technical things to work out because the students, of course, will have to watch various versions of movies and TV shows. Um, is there an online... It'll be an online syllabus or something like that for people that yes. want to go? It'll be, an, it'll be all online. UCLA, UCLA Extension will handle that. And uh, it'll be on Zoom, I imagine. So I just have... There's a lot of technical things I have to learn and have to have worked out. But... You know, I'll, I'll I'll get it all squared away, and hopefully we'll have a lot of fun finding out why, uh, you know, why this version worked and another version didn't. Yeah. And, and and there may be disagreements with people that say, well, you know, I don't think the one that you thought worked worked, and I like the second one. It's weird because sometimes, even though they're very different, I like sequels. Uh, I mean, not sequels, re- remakes. Um... But other times I don't. It depends on 
I don't know. It, I think it's it's not. It, the actors can be fantastic, and the remake can be sucky. Um. <laughs> it can go generate. I mean, you have the Seven Samurai uh, remade as a western, so you could call it maybe a ripoff, but they bought the rights as the Magnificent Seven, and then then remade as the Magnificent Seven a few years ago, which I didn't think was as good as the original Sturgis film, which I didn't think was as good as the Seven Samurai, but very different. <laughs> Uh, the Maltese Falcon with Humphrey Bogart was the third version of that, and of course the first two weren't very good. Yeah, never even uh, heard of them. <laughs> you know, the the uh, more recent remakes have been things like you know, uh, uh, early 2000s, we got the remake of The Manchurian Candidate, which I didn't think was as good as the original. I, I well, I liked, um, I liked the Tom's Crown Affair, both of them. Yep, that was a, that was a successful remake. And I liked um, uh, To Be or Not To Be, both of them. Yeah, they are very, very different. Very different. And To Be or Not To Be, interestingly enough, um, just for a minute or two on it, is an example I use in my class because I've always maintained the best comedies are serious stories told funny. Now, for if you if for listeners who haven't seen To Be or Not To Be, it's about a, a group of actors in Poland after the Nazis invade and they find out um, that a, a Nazi agent has come in with a list of all of the collaborators and, and underground agents. If the Gestapo gets that list, it'll be a bloodbath. So they have to stop the double agent from reaching the Gestapo. And if they and and it, it, there's a lot at stake, and you could take out the comedy and have a terrific spy adventure story. Mm-hmm. But Easily. even with, with and that's the plot. But on top of that plot is a hysterical comedy. Mm-hmm. And um, especially the 1942 version. And and the thing to remember, if you if you ever watch it, and the Nazis are treated like buffoons, they hysterically is if the audience in 1942, America had just got into the war, and the Nazis were winning, they controlled all of Europe, they were rushing through the Soviet Union, so it's an entirely different point of view than watching it in the 2020s when we know what happened. The original audience. The future was still a question mark. It was also Carol Lombard's last film. Brilliant comedian died in a plane crash just before its release. But it's it's a wonderful movie. I recommend it. And again, a serious story told hysterically funny. Carol Lombard was magical in that movie. She she was, and she works so beautifully opposite Jack Benny. I know they're so cute together. They were an absolute comedy duet, and com- uh, Jack Benny scenes with um, Sig, uh, Sig Roman was, were just hysterical. Beautiful. They were perfect examples of comedy timing. But anyway, for those of you who haven't seen it, catch it. it you'll have a great time. Yeah, I love that movie. And um, how do you feel about um, Thomas Crown, about uh, the remake with Pierce Bronson? I, I, I didn't see the remake. I heard it was very good. I haven't seen it. So. Oh. Yeah, it's, it's really different. It's um, it's it's it. It's the same plot basically, but um, different objects that they're after. Different. I don't want to give anything away if you've not seen it, but it's 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 very stylized like the first one. Faye Dunaway's in both. Um, <laughs> I mean, I told you that the um. It's always nice when a remake 
can add something. I mean, the first two versions of Invasion of the Body Snatchers are both terrific films. They're very different. I think that I, I think that doing it that way makes it better. That you I mean, take the basic plot line, but do it in a more modern way or in your way, but not, but still sticking to the plot line, not going crazy and adding a bunch of stuff that doesn't make sense. I think right. that's when it doesn't work. There are successful remakes, and the class will also be saying what made it successful, you know, and then there's unsuccessful ones, and we'll be looking at that too. And then there's the ripoffs, and some ripoffs are wonderful. I mean, um, you know, the famous story, the Star Trek original series episode that introduces the Romulans is a sometimes scene-by-scene ripoff of a, a movie called The Enemy Below that came out, you know, about five or six years earlier with Robert Mitchum and Kurt Jurgens. The uh, I never actually thought of it that I thought it was more of an homage. No, it, it's a uh, homage is French for ripoff. <laughs> Um, I mean, the, the, the character relationships are the same. I mean, yes, it was a clever idea. I'm sure the writer went in and said, the enemy below, in space. And they said, great idea. I never even thought that way. I just thought it was a good episode. <laughs> it was a great episode. It was a successful ripoff, a ripoff that did well. What's the ripoff that didn't? Barbed wire. Okay which is a, if you've never seen Pamela Anderson's feature, Barbed Wire, it is a remake of Casablanca. Which answers the question right there. I mean... You have have (laughs) Pamela Anderson playing the Humphrey Bogart part, which is a, you know, a unique contrast. I think Bogart was much better in the world where he's cynical department, and she looked better in a bustier. And Bogart was a great actor. Yeah, and Bogart was a great actor. Um, well, and, and it's, it's a brilliant film in so many ways. But but uh, Barbed Wire is a sci-fi punk version of Casablanca, and not not anywhere near as successful. Obviously, because we still watch Casablanca, and I don't think Barbed Wire has been brought back that much. I've never even heard of it, to be honest. That's why I was quiet. <laughs> Uh, in many ways, Gladiator was a remake of a film called The Fall of the Roman Empire. Yeah, I can see that. Um, but they were both and, and, good. And they both had their virtues. I mean, Gladiator was a successful retelling of some of the same story with a lot of new elements added, going back to history. And really good actor. <laughs> and a really good actor, but The Fall of the Roman Empire had some virtues, too. I mean, it's one of the most elaborate films ever made. The sets are, are just mind-boggling. Yeah. And and, uh, and uh, Christopher Plummer as Commodus, terrific performance. Christopher Plummer never gives a bad performance, even in a bad movie. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And he's been in a few bad movies. But, I mean, he's, he's an amazing actor. He's one of my favorites. He is. He is. So, anyway, um, you know, and, and there have been other remakes or reimaginings. I, I thought the the reimagining of Battlestar Galactica was a vast improvement over the original show. I agree, completely. I thought the first show was cute, and I think the second show was amazing. On the other hand, I thought the Wild Wild West feature missed all of the charm and everything that made the original series work. Yeah, no insult to those actors, because they're all really yep. good actors, but... Uh, oh, it was big m- actors, but you have to give them something to do. Exactly. It was just... I was so disappointed. 
because I, I was really looking forward to it with them, and I like them, but I just, yeah, it's not, and because I grew up with Wild Wild West, so to me that was no go. <laughs> I don't think some shows should be remade, really, because, I mean, some shows, TV shows, are so wedded to their performer and the persona of their performer. I know they tried to redo The Rockford Files, and I just don't think it works without James Garner. No. No, he was The Rockford Files. Yeah, the show was James Garner. Exactly. And, and, his, and his persona. Um, also, um, I didn't like The Bionic Woman, the remake. I just... I lo uh, it, it the charm of it was the charm of Lindsay Wagner and it just it just wasn't I'm not, it. I'm not sure I ever saw the remake. On the other hand, the reimagining of Wonder Woman from the eighty series to the the feature was, that was terrific. Good. Yeah, you really good. <laughs> but then you know you you have a character that's been around for decades and decades and decades, and there's a lot to look at and there you know and be inspired by. So anyway, remakes, ripoffs. Uh, and original, it, it should promise to have some interesting material. Definitely, pull off the class. Um, for uh, you've been on the show, but somebody may not have heard you before. Could you give your website and your social media so people can say hi? You know, I don't really have. There, there's a Lady Sherlock blog, and you have to you have to make sure it's the one. There's a lot of Lady Sherlock's out there, other book series even. So. Um, you have to look for one that's connected to Brooks Rocktail. I don't have a website at the moment, something I may correct this year. And I have a Facebook presence, but and Lady Sherlock has a Facebook page which I need to update. So uh you can you can find me that way and, and uh or just look me up on Google and there's a lot of interviews and, and places where you'll find me there. Okay. Um uh, go ahead, what were you gonna say? Uh, you know, you can get the spelling from the, you know, from from your uh, ad publicity. From show notes. Yeah. <laughs> um, yep, absolutely. Um, I want to thank you for taking the time out to do the show. I really appreciate it, Brooks. It's always a pleasure. I always look forward to it, and I'm honored that you you have had me on before and and this time, and hope we can all do it again. Oh, I, I absolutely. When Lady Sherlock comes out, I wanna, I wanna chat. <laughs> uh, look, looking forward to that, and have a great year. Thank you. Wishing, you too. Happy every, New Year. Wishing everyone a great year. <laughs> thank you, and thank you for chatting with Sherry. Uh -huh.